sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing a Ukrainian hit list uh, that, uh, you know, uh, publishes names and addresses of so-called Russian propagandists. I was going to be talking about a recent uh, human rights report uh, on Venezuela that was presented to the U.N. and the reality of what's happening there. Also going to be having an update on the conditions of the LGBTQ struggle here in the U.S. And as always, at 320. PM Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again with John Marciano, and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Jeremy, here lately, I feel like uh, we've been hearing a lot about um, this uh, supposed Ukrainian kill list. That is this um, sort of running uh, ledger, if you will, of, you know, people considered to be, quote unquote, Russian propagandists. Of course, all of this happening within the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Also, uh, we're having this conversation amidst uh, the issue of uh, uh, referendums uh, happening in different provinces uh, in Ukraine. And uh, I believe this is uh, boiling down to a list published to a website uh, called Mira Tov- Tvoritz, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I believe means peacemaker in uh, Ukrainian. And so uh, could you help us understand just what is this uh, uh, kill list? Who is on it? I mean, it's my understanding just from looking that there are even children that, that are on this list. And, you know, what is this purpose? Well, uh, this website, yeah, developed uh, in 2014 after the coup uh, took place, you know, supported by the U.S. And yeah, it should be noted that the uh, website lists as its uh, server address Langley, Virginia, which is where the CIA is located. Uh, so it leads to suspicious that the suspicion that the CIA is behind this, and they've been publicizing the information, yeah. Well, now they're using the term information terrorist, uh, you know, to denote people uh, who uh, are allegedly, uh, I guess, smearing Ukraine or pro-Russian propagandists. And this is, you know, dangerous language. You know, Scott Ritter pointed out a press conference recently, and he's on the list. Ritter was a weapons uh, inspector for the U.N. who exposed the fraud of the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> now he's been, uh, you know, exposing a lot of fraud surrounding the war. Uh, war in Ukraine, uh, uh, and you know, as he said, I mean that that term means you know you can treat us like we're terrorists, and we know what they do to terrorists. I mean, with the drone program, they've gone around assassinating terrorists. Uh, so you know, this kind of language is very dangerous uh, and is leading to uh, you know treating these people like actual terrorists and uh, uh, using extrajudicial methods, going so far as assassination. And yeah, the website has been publicizing information about these people they label the propagandists or information terrorists, and they put their address, uh, phone number, and other information about them. And some on that list have been killed. Uh, yeah, now a lot of them are Russian. You know, some are mercenary. They, if you go on the website, it's a bit difficult to navigate, but you'll you'll get to this information if you spend a bit of time navigating around. 
and you find, yeah, a lot of them are uh, labeled as mercen Russian mercenaries in Ukraine. Uh, some may be Russian special forces uh, or, or uh, part of private military contractors. And then others are just journalists uh, who they, you know, I guess suggest are information terrorists because they're, you know, either trying to report the war in a balanced way or giving credence to some uh, Russian views about the war. So they're on this list. Uh, Miss Dugina was one of them, you know, and she was killed in the car bombing attack. And and, and when they're when when some of these people are killed, they're kind of uh, an X is marked over their name, and it's just like this is something good. You know, one of these terrorists has been taken taken down, including through terrorism. And yeah, Miss Dugina was a, a prominent Russian broadcaster and the daughter of a well-known Russian intellectual who was murdered in a car bombing attack not too long ago, and she had an X on her name. Uh, so, you know, there are numbers, again, who've been killed. You know, luckily not everyone on the list has been killed, but, you know, if you're on that list, you have grounds to fear for your life. And, you know, Ritter pointed out that he lives in upstate New York, and there are these Ukrainian nationalist extremists, uh, a lot of their headquarters near where he lives. And they have ceremonies, you know, worshiping Stepan Bandera, who is pro-Nazi. So he actually fears for his life. He's one of the Americans on the list there. Some American, most are Russians, but there are a number of Americans, and it includes people. At one point, Henry Kissinger was on the list because he's questioned the, the sanity of U.S. leaders and potentially provoking a nuclear war with Russia, and then they put him on the list, and like some conservative military analysts are on the list too, like Edward Litwack. Yeah, you know, and Scott Ritter in the press conference that you uh, spoke about raised an issue of uh, a piece of legislation that actually ties into uh, this hit list and the legitimizing of it. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what Scott Ritter was talking about uh, in regard to that uh, legislation. Yeah, uh, he. Well, there was a press conference about this a few weeks ago, uh, featured some people who were on the list. And he spoke out against his own uh, New York congressional representatives that they were funding uh, uh, basically an organization that would, would kill an American citizen for speaking his rights and was promoting murder. And he referenced yeah, Public Law 117-128, uh, by which the U.S. is funding, the U.S. Congress is funding an organization called the Ukrainian Center for Countering Disinformation, whose professed purpose is to counter Russian disinformation by his creating this, uh, this list and, as, I guess, connection with this website, uh, Mirotvoretz. So he called on his New York congressional delegates to immediately stop funding uh, an organization that yeah, is, is promoting censorship and even murder because, as pointed out, some of the people on that list have been murdered. And almost the murder has been celebrated. Their name is marked with an X. It's good that they've been murdered uh, through terrorist acts, like the car bombing that killed Mr. Gina. So it's, it's an outrage that the U.S. Congress would fund an organization suppressing uh, the freedom of speech of U.S. citizens who have a right, as Ritter pointed out, under the U.S. Constitution uh, just to you know say what they think and, and to, to question U.S. policies. And Ritter in that conference also asked for debate, he said, you know, he said many of the points he's been attacked for are actually facts, like that NATO has bases in Ukraine, and you know the facts around the Buka incident. He researched it and found a lot of evidence that would indicate Ukrainian forces were probably behind uh, a lot of the killings in Buka that were blamed on the Russians. And these are the facts he's amassed in his own research. 
and he's happy to debate anybody. But they don't want to debate. They just want to label him an information terrorist because he's researched the topic. And Ritter has a track record of being correct with the WMB. And he pointed out in that press conference, if people had listened to him then, you know, he had investigated the WMB and found there were no WMB. That was the basis for the you know criminal attack on Iraq that killed over a million people probably and, and destabilized the Middle East. I mean, we'd be a lot better off if we listened to Ritter before. Uh, and, you know, we should listen to him again. He's a careful researcher, and uh, he's a patriotic American. He served in the Marine Intelligence Corps. He wants the best for his country and for the world. And instead, he's labeled an information terrorist. And, you know, there are extremists who live near him. He has to fear for his life and check under his car every time he, he, he takes his car out that somebody planted a bomb. Yeah, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, Jeremy, about how there are also children on this kill list, and I'm having a hard time, well, I mean, I'm having a, you know, it's pretty wild that this thing even exists, but why in the world uh, are there children on this? I mean, more than 300, uh, according to uh, uh, the reporting you did for this on uh, uh, CovertActionMagazine.com, I mean, how is it that children can be seen at Russian propagandists? I mean, what kind of threat do they pose here? Yeah, I mean, this is just a moral outrage, and I think there have been efforts to uh, publicize what this website is doing before the United Nations, and this is just uh, a moral outrage to anybody. And these are children, you know, who live in uh, eastern Ukraine who are reporting the facts of what they've experienced for eight years. You know, these are kids who've grown up under the nightmare of war and the Ukrainian attack uh, on those eastern provinces, which voted to, uh, you know, voted for their autonomy after this coup took place in 2014, you know, in those provinces, the people are more are ethnic. A lot of them speak Russian as their primary language. There's a strong connection with Russia culturally. And the new Ukrainian government, you know, when it came in 2014, was trying to impose Ukrainian language on them. And, you know, it, it imposed a government that was illegitimate in their view. So, uh, you know, for that, they've been under attack for the last eight years. These poor kids have grown up with shellings, and they've had to live in fear for their lives, and their, their school life has been disrupted. And they're just writing about this. Some are posting things on Facebook about what they've experienced, and they're calling for an end to the war, and they want to you know, have a normal childhood, and their families to be safe. And then, you know, a 13-year-old girl who's become somewhat well-known named Faina Sevenkova, who's written you know, just about what she's experienced on social media, and now she's placed on this list. And as another girl I read about who is a college student is posting stuff, basically advocating for peace, and she got on the list. So, you know, uh, these kids are under threat. And, I mean, they're just kids, and they're reporting. I mean, the world should hear what they have to say. And the Western governments have been funding this Ukrainian terrorism uh, for for years now. And it's, it's just a disgrace. Yeah, and I feel like what we're speaking to here, Jeremy, it, it, it's the darker side of um, this this war that I, I feel like is completely hidden from uh, view and certainly from the consciousness of people in the United States in the West who, you know, basically have had their consent for the role of U.S. and NATO in uh, the war in Ukraine uh, uh, to basically have that consent manufactured in in a way. And so, you know, the, the existence of things like this kill list, uh, the issue of, uh, you know, the Ukrainian government under Volodymyr Zelensky um, outlawing and suppressing opposition 
transition party is something that we've talked about consistently on the show. But, you know, there's a hardly a mumbling word said on mainstream platforms. There's just a really dangerous, a dark aspect of this conflict from the Ukrainian side of things that you're basically not allowed to talk about, you know, uh, lest you be accused of uh, uh, worshiping at the altar of, of Vladimir Putin or, or the Russian government in general. And so I think a lot of people just don't realize the actual dangerous implications of things like this to the extent that they're even aware it exists. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and if you go on this website, there are hideous photos of Russians that they killed, that the Ukrainian army or special forces killed, and they're publicizing their dead bodies on the website, gruesome images uh, of dead Russians. And that gets your point about the dark side. There's a real dark side of uh, the Ukrainian army operations going back eight years. You know, they've carried out tortures, uh, hideous killings. Uh, some are, a lot of these killings are carried out by paramilitary units that have neo-Nazi insignia and worship. You know, people like Stepan Bandera, who uh, collaborated with the Nazis in World War II, uh, and, and Ukrainian nationalists who massacred Jews uh, uh, during World War II. So, uh, you know, why is the U.S. government funding this in the first place? People should be asking that question here in the United States and Western countries. But as you point out, we're not allowed to ask that question. And they try and create this kind of cartoonish view of the war uh, of this noble Ukraine fighting the big you know, Russian bear. And Putin is this evil dictator who just decided to invade them one day because he's a madman. And they have you know, been spreading rumors, that, you know, false rumors, that uh, Putin was mentally imbalanced and suffering from disease or something. Uh, and this just obscures the, the political backdrop uh, of how this war started uh, and how the U.S. and NATO yeah, have provoked the conflict uh, and kind of used, they basically used Ukraine as part of a larger agenda to try and weaken Russia, destabilize Russia. And that's not allowed under discussion yet. The media just puts it in black and white terms and obscures this real, real dark side that, that's very scary. I mean, it's a scary side of human nature uh, when you look into it just a little bit. And it's, again, a disgrace that uh, U.S. taxpayer money is, is funding this terrorism and, and this kind of thing. As Ritter pointed out, the U.S. government is funding you know, an assassination program, basically, and the suppression of freedom of speech of American citizens who, as enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, have the right to question their government's policy and should, in a case like this, where, where taxpayer dollars are being wasted and sent to very dark forces. Yeah. And what you just mentioned about, you know, this cartoonish uh, depiction of this war that people have. I mean, this is not something that is isolated to just this situation uh, in Ukraine, but it actually goes back quite a while. And it was something that was also raised by another, you know, reputable anti-war activist in the same press conference on September 7th. So, you know, what what did uh, uh, Ray McGovern say about like the long history? history of the, 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 I guess, the cartoonification of international affairs that so many people in the United States are susceptible to, to the point where we don't believe the truth when people are telling us, uh, and it's literally right there in our faces. 
Yeah, well, from what I remember, Ray McGovern, who is a uh, who had been the CIA briefer, you know, George H.W. Uh, Bush, and has had a long career in the CIA, an insider. He quoted from Will Rogers, the famous humorist. Uh, I have the quote here. Rogers said, "It isn't what we don't know that gives us trouble; it's what we know that ain't so." And he, you know, I think Americans think uh, they know that you know Russia is evil. Uh, Putin invaded, and we have to stand up to the Russians. But again, that's really not the reality of the situation. What they know ain't so. And, you know, reference Iraq also. I mean, you can compare the situation with Iraq. It gets back into Ritter. And they thought uh, Saddam Hussein had, you know, weapons of mass destruction and was some kind of menace to humanity when he was more of a regional uh, dictator and, and it was, you know, more a regional issue. Uh, and in some ways, I mean, there's a mixed record. He had stabilized uh, Iraq to some extent on some positive as well, a lot of negative in this country, but he wasn't a threat to the whole world as he was presented. But they thought, because of the propaganda, they thought, and that's what gives us trouble. You know, uh, Americans were ingrained to believe, you know, the weapon of mass destruction, you know, Putin, evil dictator. And so they support these dubious uh, foreign policies that in this case could be leading the world toward nuclear war. I mean, Russia's placed itself on high nuclear alert, and there was a, a hearing uh, last week in the U.S. Senate you know, confirming the new head of the STRATCOM, who said he's preparing his men to use nuclear weapons. And he was asked, uh, you know, if there's a crisis, should we have flexibility in using nuclear weapons? And he said yes. So, I mean, we, we have top-ranking military people who are ready to use nuclear weapons, and this is where this thing is escalating. So, it gets to Ray's point, it's very, very dangerous, these beliefs, these cartoonish views of world affairs uh, ultimately results in very destructive foreign policies, causing millions of deaths, like in Iraq, thousands of deaths in Ukraine, and, and possible world war, nuclear war breaking out. So it's just yeah, incredibly dangerous, the myths, uh, uh, and when they become institutionalized, uh, uh, the, the extent to what the public is, is willing to support based on those myths is, is really scary. Yeah, without question. And what you just said, Jeremy, I think bears repeating because it's a reality that has purposefully been obfuscated um, from the understanding of the people of the United States is that the uh, narratives that come from U.S. imperialism on Russia, China and a number of other uh, countries that we could name uh, literally could have a, a, a frankly catastrophic result for humanity itself. Because when we talk about Russia and the United States, we're talking about two uh, nuclear armed powers. And so uh, uh, if uh, an open conflict were to break out between them, well, then, I mean, uh, what that could spell, I mean, the danger of that, I think, is something beyond what we could even really comprehend. And so this is why it's so important, despite um, the, the the intensity of the moment and all the stigma that comes with um, really pushing uh, the truth of this. I mean, frankly, I think it's our duty um, to continue to reveal the reality of what's happening if we want to avoid that uh, a devastating potential. But we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the issue of human rights inside Venezuela, what is true, what is false, and more. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ricardo Voss, political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Ricardo, uh, recently there was a report that was published accusing the Venezuelan government of crimes against humanity, uh, including torture, sexual violence and uh, more. uh, And also claiming that Venezuelan President uh, Nicolas Maduro and other officials were directly involved in these abuses. And this report was also presented during the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council. And uh, this uh, report has been uh, rejected and uh, rebuffed by a Venezuelan human rights group by the name of uh, Suarez, which has called into question uh, much of what the uh, report is saying. And so to begin, I was hoping you could break down, number one, uh, who put together this uh, report on Venezuela that was uh, Um, presented at the U.N., what did it contain, and what do you see as sort of the reality behind this? Yeah, so this this was produced by uh, what's called the U.N. Fact-Finding Mission for Venezuela. This was controversial from the beginning. It was set up by the U.N. Human Rights Council in 2019. If we go back to 2019, this was a very agitated period with a lot of hostility. I mean, the, the coup effort against Venezuela was in was in motion and full, full speed ahead. And so with enough allies at the, human, the UN Human Rights Council, the, the US and its allies created this fact-finding mission to investigate alleged uh, human rights violations in, in Venezuela. And it's been three years. The, the, the mission worked for a year and then was renewed for another two. I don't think it's going to get renewed again. But as as uh, many people have explained, and in particular SURES, which is a human rights organization here in, in Venezuela that we uh, consulted for when we wrote a piece about this this report, uh, the issue is that this, this mission is, is flawed from the beginning in, in the sense that it never actually set foot in Venezuela. It only relied on, on interviews done abroad with uh, people allegedly um, who were victims or relatives of victims of human rights abuses and also former employees of these uh, state agencies allegedly responsible for these human rights violations. And the issue of doing this amount, which aren't that much, it's like 250 anonymous interviews, is that the, the facts cannot be independently verified. So that, that's the issue from the beginning. But, but going beyond that, it's very clear to me, and the timing is not coincidental, that this is another case of uh, trying to make political use of human rights to to attack the to attack Venezuela and, and to legitimize uh, this United States-led aggression against Venezuela. That on one on one hand, and on the other, we can also talk a bit about this. This has also been much needed oxygen for the nearly forgotten, uh, self-proclaimed "quote unquote" interim government led by Juan Guaido. 
Yeah, you know, Ricardo, and the uh, claims in this report that these abuses, the alleged abuses were systematic, are also really dubious because of uh, actions in the country that have actually targeted people who were corrupt, like literally convicting security officials. So can you speak to the na- that part of the nature of the report and why that is a, a, a glaring untruth uh, about uh, what goes on in Venezuela? Yeah, I think that's even contradictory uh, from, from the report itself, because if we look at the cases they present, I think in total it's like 210 over uh, an eight or nine year period. So we're talking about one or two cases a month. So even by their own numbers, it, you can't really argue that it's uh, systematic. And, and the thing that, that the, the, the report's authors argue is that it's systematic against government opponents. And even by their own uh, findings, only of these 200 cases, only about 50 are alleged uh, opposition members. So it's even less systematic by, by that standard. We're talking about a, a period from 2014 that included two uh, large-scale attempted uh, uprisings by the opposition, the so-called Guarimbas, that were uh, very violent street protests uh, that lasted for for months. And one of the main uh, complaints from from Venezuela and and other observers from the very beginning was that if if this mission was going to cover human rights violations, it also needed to cover the, the blatant abuses committed by these opposition people during, uh, particularly during those two periods. I mean, if you remember, they burned people of color alive, they, they hung wires across avenues that beheaded motorcyclists. It, it, was, it was really a, a, gruesome, a gruesome experience, which doesn't uh, discard the fact that there, there were and there still are uh, significant issues and, and human rights violations being committed by Venezuelan security force, and particularly these two agencies that are signaled that are kind of special agencies. But it goes to your point, uh, Jackie. Hi, uh, it's great to hear from you. That uh, the, the Venezuelan government has, with a bit of international pressure, uh, tried to address this issue, and there have been, if I'm not mistaken, some 200 security officials have been convicted in the past five years for human rights violations. So there were even even cases that had been closed were reopened for uh, a second investigation to find out uh, responsibilities and and punish th- those who, who had uh, infringed and, and inflicted these this, uh, horrible practices on, on, on prisoners. But, but going, going back to my point, uh, it, it's, it's really a, a, a collection of mistruths and, and exaggerations that's meant to really deliver these these buzzwords. I mean, the final, the final, the final, the, the cherry on top. This this thing that Maduro was personally involved. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, Maduro cannot be an evil genius and an amateur at the same time. I mean, you have to pick one. And the other thing is that this is this has been the kind of the mo for uh, either these uh, U.S. friendly human rights missions or even uh, U.S. Uh, agencies themselves. They always rely on these people who used to work for uh, the Venezuelan state security agencies. And they ju- their, their word is just taken at face value and there's never any question of the, of the motive. I mean, these people who, who used to work for these agencies and are now defectors effectively, I mean, they, they cannot come back. They have every reason to exaggerate or, or make up these explosive sounding comments because that, that will make them more useful for, for, for the US and, and so, it's it's very hard to to take seriously something that just relies on on this kind of testimony, at least in my opinion. 
Yeah, definitely. And I'm also wondering, Ricardo, because uh, we know about how uh, Suarez and these other um, Venezuelan human rights groups have uh, been responding to this report and others like it. But uh, what have we seen from the uh, Venezuelan government itself uh, in terms of a response uh, to this report? Yeah, so there there have been a series of um, human rights movement in, in, in recent years. There's an, another case that's going on in the International Criminal Court, which I find equally ludicrous. It's also an accusation of uh, crimes against humanity. It was brought forward by these, uh, these right-wing governments in Latin America that were all U.S. allies. And there's actually a chance now that, for example, Colombia, that now has a left-wing president, is going to withdraw the complaint. So, so the ICC also opened um, a probe for alleged uh, widespread state, state-led human rights violations. But it has been in a more cooperative fashion. I mean, the Venezuelan government signed the Memorandum of Understanding with them. They opened a, an office here in, in Caracas and also with the office of the, the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the United Nations. That, that was Michelle Bachelet until a month ago. I, I don't know who, who replaced her. That relation was also very hostile in the beginning, but then it moved to a more cooperative fashion. And, and there are also several... Uh, I think 16 human rights um, investigators from the from the office of, of the High Commission of Human Rights here in Venezuela, and they, on one hand, these two agencies have uh, issued recommendations, and the Venezuelan state has reacted on the other. For example, there was this uh, special force called FIES, which was really responsible for uh, heavy-handed uh, policing, uh, even even targeted killings, but it, it wasn't uh, you know targeting government opponent it was really a more a more classical criminalization of poverty uh, so and this agency was was dissolved and and that has been one example and and the, even the 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 office of the high commissioner for human rights at the un has uh, praised the venezuelan state for taking some steps it has also criticized others which are fair to some extent like the lack of, of judicial independence all, all of this to say that there are serious issues with uh, the Venezuelan uh, police and, and security apparatus in general, but, but they are not uh, more serious nor different from what you'll find in, in other countries. I mean, and especially if you look at the, the very severe economic crisis that the Venezuelan people have gone through, I mean, this has uh, percolated at, at all levels. And so it has uh, stimulated corruption at, in these uh, security agents. I mean, they, they also get involved in, in illegal businesses like drug trafficking and so on, and there are fights for territory. This is all kind of a uh, symptom of, of, of the, the crisis that, that's going on. But it is an issue of heavy-handed policing, of criminalization of poverty that happens here, and it's very serious, but it, it's not something exclusive, and it's, it's certainly not something that's specifically targeting uh, government opponents. And in fact, there is a, a debate going on Inside, inside Chavismo, in, inside uh, the Bolivarian revolution itself, of uh, trying to bring this up and, and generate this debate, because at, in, at one point, Chavez, around 2007, 2008, uh, realized that this was a very serious issue and there was a need to, to create a different kind of security concept, a different kind of police, and there was a, a, a university created just for this, for this purpose, and there, were, there was progress. But then, uh, you know, there was the crisis and, and everything, and this was kind of reverted. So there's a, a debate inside Chavismo because this is recognized as an issue that needs that needs to be addressed. But it's certainly not uh, the case that there's systematic. It's certainly even less so 
uh, that it's a uh, political targeting and it's uh, i mean to say that it that there are crimes against humanity is just ludicrous yeah and you know when you talk about the economic situation and the impact of sanctions i mean you know not only is that i think sort of missing from this uh particular report that we're discussing but it feels like a defining characteristic of um you know the orientation towards venezuela that we see you know not only from you know the us its corporate uh media platforms but you know even from uh these types of institutions which is interesting because i feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ricardo, that sort of other aspects uh, and other uh, departments, if that's the proper name to use them, of the United Nations, you know, has in fact acknowledged, you know, the impact that um, sanctions have had and continue to have on the people uh, of Venezuela. And so it just feels like, you know, there's a reason why that really crucial and central uh, context seems to always be missing from these sorts of things as part and parcel uh, of an effort to sort of you know, not only stigmatize Venezuela, but beyond that, to, to, to justify the aggression that is directed at that country, you know, by these uh, other elements. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, as ever, it just feels like there's a transparently political uh, uh, motivation for the way we see a lot of these things uh, play out, you know, when they're published. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's absolutely correct. I mean, you you cannot. I mean, you, you can have a lot of criticism of of, of Venezuela and, and its its state agencies and so on. I mean, I, I would argue that it's not for international agencies to to fix it because, let, to to put it mildly, uh, the UN doesn't have really a, a track record of uh, fixing stuff uh, worldwide. It has a track record of uh, looking the other way uh, when when there are really serious things going on. But uh, to your point, it it, it really is. Um, uh, disgraceful, to, to say the least, to have a report about human rights issues in, in Venezuela and not begin by U.S. sanctions. This is the greatest uh, attack on, on Venezuelan human rights right now and, and in the past few years. And so to, to try and, and uh, separate everything that goes on afterwards from, from sanctions is uh, it, it's a, dishonest, a dishonest exercise. And the other thing is also true. I mean, there are other UN agencies, the, the, uh, Michelle Bachelet, the High Commissioner for Human Rights. I mean, it, it was a struggle and, and she was under a lot of pressure from Venezuela, from allies and from solidarity movements. And she finally began to acknowledge that sanctions were not just some piecemeal measure targeting high-ranking officials. It was really a, a widespread blockade that affected uh, the human rights of, of the Venezuelan population. There, there have also been uh, experts, uh, they, they call them special rapporteurs, who have been on the ground and investigated. They have visited hospitals, they have visited prisons, and uh, you know they have visited schools and, and everything else. And, and they have uh, written extensive reports detailing the, the impact of US sanctions and also criticizing the shortcomings of, of the Venezuelan government. So to have such a one-sided view and even extrapolated, as we were discussing with these kind of methodological uh, issues, to, to put it mildly, uh, it really is a, a political hit job because if you look at it, it, it turns the what what's a, a political issue, you know, between the, the government and the opposition into a kind of criminal, judicial judicial thing that you know Maduro is a, a kind of large scale outlaw that needs to be punished for being directly responsible for these human rights violations. So it, it kind of tries to move the the battleground away from the political and the electoral 
scenario to some kind of uh, human rights international tribunal thing, which I think is uh, it's, it's, it's not it's not it's, it's not in, innocent, and it comes at a time when the the U.S. backed opposition is is uh, at a, its lowest ebb. It has a very hard time uh, mobilizing people and and staying relevant because they they promised to overthrow the government in weeks, and it's been almost four years, and and the government is. The democratically elected government is very much still there, so this gives them uh, ammunition because it doesn't really want to prove anything. I mean, everything is just uh, allegations and and what have you. But it gives them this these catchwords of you know the, the UN, which is not really the UN. The UN says that uh, the dictatorship, quote unquote, is committing crimes against humanity. So it gives them oxygen, and, and then it, in turn it feeds the the U.S. officials who want to justify the aggression, it gives them these kind of words to, to repeat to the media and continue perpetuating this aggression against Venezuela. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, what it all really makes me think about, Ricardo, at the end of the day, it, 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 it makes me realize just how deep and uh, profound the information war is as it pertains uh, to Venezuela. And I feel like we see similar trends with, you know, other countries that are deemed as, you know, enemies of uh, the more uh, powerful nations in the world, you know, namely the United States, uh, uh, Western Europe and, and things like this to the point where it's not just a matter of proclamations from these different countries' leaders. It's not just a, a, a matter of what's uh, published in the mainstream media platforms, but also, you know, even up until the international level, uh, you know what I mean? And so I feel like it, it actually shows a different dimension of uh, everything that Venezuela and its people have going against it. I mean, here is a country that is simply trying to uh, uh, carry through their own uh, processes of democracy and all these sorts of things. I mean, all they really seek to do, at least from my um, perspective is to, I mean, frankly, exercise their own sovereignty, uh, which they should be able to do and which I think all nations have a right to do uh, without interference. And so th th this level of um, attack, if you will, is something that is invisibilized uh, to a lot of people. I can definitely say here in the United States, but even if they were aware, I mean, they're primed to just sort of uh, uncritically accept uh, these kinds of accusations because countries like Venezuela have been so demonized. And so, I mean, this issue of uh, stigmatizing and demonizing, quote unquote, uh, 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 enemy countries is a typical thing. But what isn't seen is the material impact that it has on the people in countries like Venezuela. You know what I mean? Because it's part and parcel of um, that broader assault of which sanctions is a major aspect. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? Where you create, you create this propaganda, and then this propaganda justifies the aggression. And then, you know, when whenever something like this comes up, the, there's just a ready-made narrative that just gets another level built onto it. But it, it, it's also an issue of, uh, I mean, the, the information war is, is is critical because when it comes to these demonized countries, not only is the the, the burden of proof completely turned upside down, but also the threshold is very low. I remember uh, some years ago when, when, when the Syrian war was, was raging on, that there was a report of, of 
this many uh, political prisoners in Syria, and then of course it was uh, publicized. It was it, it had all the headlines in in the corporate media, and then you you went to read the report, and this was based on kind of a three D construction of an underground prison, and from there they estimated the number of prisoners that were in there. I mean that that's the kind of thing that they do. It's like this report against Venezuela. You interview some dozen people uh, outside, and then you make these allegations that that Maduro himself was was phoning uh, officials to to order torture practices so it 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 it, uh, it gives us an idea of what we're up against but it also as you were saying and, and and very correctly that whatever issues exist and there are human rights issues in venezuela like in other places it's down to the venezuelan people and its democratically elected institutions to to deal with them Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Ricardo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about gay marriage in the United States and how that right appears to be under threat. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Arjukina. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, Morgan, following from the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, which was a serious attack on abortion rights in the United States and on women in general, there were people who were pointing to the fact that that uh, development uh, has some uh, uh, troublesome implications, to say the very least, for a number of other basic democratic rights, like uh, voting rights and marriage equality as well. And so uh, among these issues that has been risen is uh, uh, basically the protection of the Respect for Marriage Act, which, you know, defends uh, same gender marriage. Now, uh, Senate Democrats, instead of fighting for uh, that bill right now, instead of voting for it right now, it appears that they've decided to actually postpone voting on it until after the midterms in November, even though they have a majority there. And so I'm just wondering, why do you think this is? Why wait till November when not only marriage equality, but I mean, frankly, the the rights and safety of LGBTQ people have been under serious attack uh, as of late? What do you make of this? Well, I think that it's indicative. Uh, I mean, it's it's really just part of the same message that the Democrats have been sending for the last two years, which is that uh, defending their ability to play political games via the filibuster is more important than defending Americans' rights, because that's the decision they have made uh, uh, time and time again. As the Republicans have used the filibuster to block basically all of like President Biden's agenda and the, their own agenda, including yeah, including the. Um, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and uh, even going, you know, go, going even further back, the uh, well, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have made 
Roe versus Wade into law, you know, and we would not be in a situation we're in right now. Um, but also, you know, the um, the infrastructure bill and the and uh, the, the would have addressed climate change and all this other stuff, uh, paid family leave. All of that has been allowed to be torpedoed uh, by by Republicans because the Democrats think that protecting the filibuster in case they need to use it next time they're in the minority is more important than actually protecting Americans' rights that are under attack. And we see that again now with the um, Respect for Marriage Act and, and and a right that we know is on the chopping block. The uh, Supreme Court in the Dobbs decision in June said that, you know, what their next targets are going to be. All the things that are protected under the right to privacy, which they're slowly eroding, the um, right to an abortion was uh, to terminate your pregnancy was kind of the first blow of that attack. But it's going to be um, the right to marriage equality and the right to, to interracial marriage, the right to, you know, get um, uh, contraception and uh, and many other things that are that are also Kind of formed from that same aegis of um, of 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 rights that the uh, that the the Supreme Court uh, you know read into several decades ago that they're now trying to undo. Yeah, Morgan. And if the Democrats were to vote on uh, the uh, RFMA right now, it would actually repeal uh, another piece of legislation that at one point in time, Democratic legislators supported many of them themselves, but is actually was actually a piece of legislation that was a uh, key in uh, dismantling or being a roadblock toward marriage equity for gay and lesbian couples. So what what would uh, automatically happen uh, if the Democrats did what they're supposed to do and vote uh, on RFMA right now that would really just address this issue uh, of uh, marriage equity for gay and lesbian couples? Yeah, well, this is a, a, an area where the issue with the, with, um, with marriage equality and with abortion is actually very, very similar because the when the Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 that it was illegal to deny same-sex couples the right to marry, um, that it was discriminatory. What that did was that that suspended all of these, um, there's 31 U.S. states that have written in their constitution or have laws passed that that ban the passage of a same-sex marriage law that define marriage as between one man and one woman. And that that movement, most of those happened in the last maybe like 20 years between the 90s and the 2000s um, before the 2015 Obergefell ruling. And that was really kind of explicitly encouraged and endorsed by this law called the Defense of Marriage Act that was passed in, I think, 1996, um, which was signed by President Bill Clinton and, as you said, was supported by a lot of Democrats um, because it was even back then in the 90s. This was, you know, already getting a lot of momentum and they felt like they needed to, well, as they said, quote unquote, defend marriage. Uh, so yeah, if Overgefell if Overgefell were uh, were overturned in the same way that Roe was, you would have these thirty one state bans immediately come into effect, and uh, and more states would be given explicit sanction to do to to pass their own, and it would probably unfold very similar to how we've seen with Roe being gone. That now other uh, conservatives in other states that didn't have already explicit bans have been kind of emboldened to pursue bans themselves. And uh, and the Democrats have been kind of caught on their heels and not really mounting much of a of a struggle to defend any of those rights. 
Yeah, and you know, you published a piece about this, um, Morgan, in in Liberation News, and in it, you uh, uh, talk about you know how popular uh, gay marriage is in the United States, and you you cite a, a Gallup poll that uh, was published last year that found that seventy percent of the U.S. population supports marriage equality, which includes eighty three percent of Democrats and even fifty five percent of Republicans. So even um, a little over a majority of Republicans uh, who were polled supported this. As well, you know, I remember back in 2015, um, you know, when marriage equality was uh, uh, passed. I mean, it was a you know cause for celebration and all these sorts of things. And so, uh, the fact that there's just no fight back from uh, 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 Democrats as it pertains to this, even though it's uh, clearly. Um, something that uh, impacts the people that they uh, consider their base and that it's obviously something that is popular in the U.S. is pretty perplexing. And it reminds me, and I feel like I bring this up every time you're on the show, but it's because it really did sort of blow my mind. It's because I remember when you um, wrote a story about how Democrats in Maryland sort of withdrew their own transgender health care bill out of an attempt to appeal to right-wing voters, which never works on the one hand, and then on the other hand, also just throws people's lives like under the bus. And so it's hard not to feel that there's something a, a deeper that's uh, uh, motivating this. I mean, there's obviously like a political and electoral calculus that's happening on the part of the Democrats, which, as I noted a moment ago, is just like completely just ineffective. Um, but uh, also there's the fact that, you know, when we talk about transgender people, when we talk about LGBTQ folks. I mean, we're talking about um, an exploited segment of the U.S. population uh, that definitely is under attack from the right in this country. And there's just no fight back from uh, the Democrats who proclaim to be uh, uh, the protectors of poor, working and oppressed people. And so then it seems to me that what is needed is precisely what's been happening, because I feel like in the streets, people have been uh, speaking out um, against these issues. People have been standing against attacks from the far right on LGBTQ folks. They've definitely been in the streets around abortion rights. And so it seems to me that, you know, the people, the movement is is what's going to really uh, uh, resolve this issue and who are really going to be the force that really protects uh, uh, gay marriage, abortion rights and these other Democratic rights, because these ruling class formations, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, you know, have shown that they're either uh, outwardly against it or simply not that interested in like doing much about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that it's the there's well, there's a lot of things kind of going on there. You know, in the one hand, the Democrats have always been really only supported marriage equality or any of these other, you know, um, LGBTQ rights uh, initiatives because they faced this pressure from below, right? It was um, even the Supreme Court's ruling in Obergefell was the product of, of you know, years of popular pressure, you know, that, that built up state by state by state. Uh, in uh, in in the 2000s, especially where where and DC is is one of those places where that was it was local grassroots struggles by uh, queer people and their and their allies uh, to to you know compel those. So there was kind of it was obvious the direction the country was moving, and uh, and you know they kind of felt the need to reincorporate that group of people, you know, before they became really revolutionary or whatever. And, um, and now, now I think they're trying to undo that, you know, the Roe versus Wade is the same kind of thing. It was born out of the struggle of the sixties and the seventies and that explosion of social movements that was really, you know, kind of given, uh, invigorated by the, by the, um, 
the 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 black struggle for civil rights, uh, and so and the women's liberation movement was a part of that. Um, and so I think I think it's really important to to return to that idea that it's the people who make these things happen, and it's 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 people in the streets uniting around you know common issues, common interests, and not you know this kind of red team versus blue team politics that the Democrats want to want to play, and the Republicans of course do too. Because it, the, the Democrats aren't the ones who gave us these rights. We can't rely on them to protect them because they're not really interested in those. And that's why, you know, even though, like, I think in that poll, it says, like you said, a majority of Democrats and Republicans alike um, support marriage equality, for example. You have senior Democratic leaders, you know, like Hillary Clinton, for example, who was like only really came around to supporting marriage equality when it was politically opportune to do so. And, you know, even recently, I think within the last year was saying, I think it was a couple of months ago, you know, she was saying that, uh, you know, trans rights are basically not worth risking losing the election over. You know, so it's um, it it, it really highlights the fact that, that, that it's going to have to be the people who, you know, defend these ourselves and push uh, these politicians to take up this defense and show them that there will be political consequences uh, if uh, if they, you know, if they don't do that. And yeah, you know, in in this political moment, because we're, you know, heading into the midterms, uh, about to see another uh, national election, how do you see uh, the the organizing uh, in the streets among the people uh, with the kind of, as you pointed out, the, the clearly red-blue partisan politicking on an issue of human rights that the Republicans and the Democrats want to continue to play? How do people who are organizing in the streets uh, push back against that kind of narrative that's still being pushed, not just by the Republicans, but but by the party, as Sean mentioned early, that's uh, earlier, that's supposed to be the defender of, you know, the rights of the oppressed. But they're the ones who are once again kicking the can down the road of addressing ensuring that everyone's human rights are uh, guaranteed and met in this country. Morgan. Yeah, well, I think the key is, and I think this is what you're seeing more and more, is um, the realizing that, you know, these issues don't exist in a vacuum um, and and are connected to other rights and other struggles. And uh, there's obviously there's a lot of obvious, you know, connections between this uh, struggle for trans rights and for marriage equality and that for abortion, um, some of which I've already uh, highlighted here. Uh, but, you know, also there is the issue, just the, the overwhelming struggle of working class people in this country to get uh, to get a, access to, you know, healthcare and and jobs and, you know, steady places to live and to be able to afford basic goods. And uh, kind of as, as Sean was saying, you know, uh, LGBTQ people are, are oppressed and exploited people too. Uh, you know, they are members of the working class. And ultimately, you know, it's important to highlight the fact that any ability to divide the working class against itself is something that serves, uh, you know, the, the interests of the rich. Uh, because then they can keep us fighting each other instead of fighting them. And uh, and so I think that there is a lot of, you know, unity. I think a lot of people when they, you know, you have, as you said, Republicans who support marriage equality, even though their party is very against it, um, because they see that, you know, the ability to discriminate against gay people's marriage is also the ability to discriminate against, for example, interracial marriage, you know, which is also something that is that is at, um, at risk that the Loving versus Virginia case. Um, and actually, that was actually how they got some of the Republicans on board with this bill in the first place was it also protects interracial racial marriage. 
Uh, so it, you know, it's it's respect. That's why it's called the Respect for Marriage Act. And uh, so there's there's and th- that's just kind of very one example. But there are really broad connections to be drawn that I think are going to become more important as these contradictions become you know heavier and heavier. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin, an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta and co-founder of Black Power Media. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Absolutely. And Kamal, I wanted to uh, start things off today talking about the situation with uh, Brittany Martin, a black organizer in South Carolina who uh, seems to sort of have had the book thrown at her as it pertains her whole situation as she has recently been incarcerated basically for her role in leading uh, uh, anti-police terror uh, demonstrations in the area. So I was hoping you could tell us more about Brittany Martin's uh, situation and where things stand with her. Yeah, Brittany Martin is in still locked up today in South Carolina. Uh, she was convicted on a heightened charge um, of, of basically a confrontation with the police. Um, and the basic incident took place where it was like, as you stated, at a demonstration 
where she yelled at the cop. Uh, there's no accusation or allegation that there was any physical introduction. Um, but, but she yelled at the cop or at several police officers, just saying, are you ready to die for the blue? Uh, I'm ready to die for the black. And, and in a general way, not a threatening message, not, a, not an individual threat to anybody. Again, this is what's been reported. And the police decided to arrest her and charge her, and the judge convicted her. Um, and she received, if I'm not mistaken, a four-year sentence um, for that. Uh, and so one of the most outrageous things about it, one, is that the mere fact that uh, uh, somehow her First Amendment rights do not apply um, to suggest that this is somehow a threat to the police officer or a terrorist threat really turns on its head the idea of the right um, to talk back to authority, to yell at authority, to have First Amendment rights, to speak out. Uh, in this case, is ripe, um, I think at least, for a larger challenge on First Amendment rights. I know that she has an attorney and she has some support in South Carolina um, and the attorneys are working diligently, as I assume, on getting a reduced sentence for her or time served. And, of course, we all hope that that happens. But I think even the bigger issue is the fact that she was not only arrested, but tried and convicted and then sentenced uh, to a longer uh, prison period than most, if not anybody, who was sentenced in the uh, January so-called uprisings uh, at the state, at the at the federal capitol. So. I think this kind of case uh, is ripe for attention, for people to uh, uh, make calls or figure or find out more information, um, and really put pressure on uh, the, the city in South Carolina. I'm sorry, I don't have the information right in front of me, but uh, the city in South Carolina where this happened, uh, so that we can figure out a way to get some justice for this sister, who at, uh, also we should say is pregnant and is experiencing uh, a loss of weight, has had. Uh, several times had to been taken to the infirmary uh, to deal with uh, pregnancy issues, and so she should just, she should not be um, in in prison um, right now as a pregnant woman um, who is again face, not in facing dealing with uh, a sentence that uh, should never have gotten in the first place. So she is definitely somebody who I would classify as a political prisoner because she's in in prison, locked up because of her speech. Uh, and no other reason whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, just literally because of what she uh, is perceived, or, or not even what she is perceived to have said, but what people's personal opinion is about what they perceive what she said. Because I don't think we can overstate the fact that she was found guilty of breach of peace and of a high... Uh, an aggravated nature by a jury. And I'm wondering how you are assessing the fact that a jury, supposedly in this country, we get a jury of our peers, we're supposed to get, we're supposed to get a jury of our peers uh, that is supposed to make uh, jury trials and the court system more quote unquote fair. Um, but I'm wondering how you're assessing the role of juries and the bias that that jurors, especially in these small southern towns like Sumter, North Carolina, and the propaganda that so many people are are very much invested in, how do you think that all plays into, you know, what this means for 
um, uh, activism and, and, you know, folks like, like us who are out in the streets, who are protesting all, all the time against racist police terrorism and what this, you know, how this bodes for the ongoing fight against racist police terrorism in this country. And I want to, you know, I want to be clear that, you know, I could be out in the streets and I would yell the same thing to the cops. So I, I see, you know, I, I see this case breaking down as in um, the, the system, uh, the so-called criminal justice system, uh, you know, in some language I can say it failed her, but it repressed and oppressed someone who was fighting against police terror. And what they did was use their power um, to have this person, again, to arrest this person, that was an illegal arrest. It should have been thought of as an illegal arrest. To charge this person, that should have, they, they, if, if we had a fair system, she never would have been arrested. If we had a fair system, she never would have been charged, but she was charged. If we had a fair system, she never would have been uh, in front of a jury in the first place. And if we had a fair system, the jury would not have even uh, uh, convicted her. They would have acquitted her. If we had a fair system, the judge could have overruled the jury or thrown out the verdict and said it was uh, uh, illegal based on not being constitutional. Instead, the judge gives a heightened sentence. So she was failed every step of the way through the so-called criminal justice system. Um, and so I think even though it's just a, this is a small town, the implications are huge that they thought they could get away with it. And as we've seen since the uprisings that happened almost two years ago, uh, particularly in areas that are overtly conservative, there has been uh, attempted law after law, which criminalizes activism, organizing, demonstrations. And so we are still slowly moving towards a time period where they're, they're carving out more territory, where organizing and activism is not going to be allowed, where marches and demonstrations are going to be criminalized. And so we have to look clear, clear-eyed clear at what's happening. This is not necessarily an isolated uh, incident as, as much as it is an example of what there is to come. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. We've been talking on the show, Kamau, about uh, how there is a kind of creeping uh, right wing assault on basic democratic rights in the United States and this uh, political repression, which we saw all throughout. Uh, that that uprising against racism, the George Floyd protest in, in 2020, I think is definitely an aspect of that. And I mean, to the point you made about the fact that she is pregnant, um, uh, I'm looking at this piece that was published about it on uh, NBCNews.com. And uh, uh, she was talking about how Martin, that is, was saying about how, you know, being pregnant uh, while being in prison Without, you know, the adequate prenatal care is taking a real toll on both her physical and mental health. Of course, you know, obviously prison of all places is not a good environment for a pregnant woman. And according to inmate records, she's been sent to a medical facility 11 times since she was first admitted to prison. 11 times since she was uh, admitted uh, uh, with, you know, her most recent visits being fairly recent. You know what I mean? And of course, you know, we know the level of medical care within, you know, American prisons is is, is negligible. And what I'm really, what, what this puts me in mind of, Kamau, is something that uh, political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal wrote in his book, Have Black Lives Ever Mattered? And folks may have heard me reference this before, but Mumia said that, the wages of black protests, the wages of black resistance 
is repression, repression, and more repression. And so when I, uh, you know, read and study about what happened with Brittany Martin, I mean, I immediately think of uh, two other similar cases. I think of Josh Williams, uh, who was a protester in Ferguson, who was sentenced to eight years for setting a trash can on fire. Uh, and who was clearly made an example of because of this. And I can't help but feel like there's some um, resonance with that with Brittany Martin, because as you say, she's not accused of really doing anything violent, either to uh, a police officer or to someone else or even to property or something like that. Um, of course, crimes against property are, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, you know, seen as a particularly uh, harrowing here in the United States under the capitalist system. Um, and I also think about the organizers up in Denver, Colorado, that we discussed a lot uh, here on the show, who were facing decades in prison uh, for, quote unquote, kidnapping uh, police officers. But what that kidnapping looked like was basically uh, having a mass demonstration outside of uh, uh, a police station demanding justice for the racist police killing of Elijah McClain. Now, fortunately, uh, they were able to, uh, uh, you know, walk away without serving this prison time, although they did spend some time uh, incarcerated at the outset. And so when we look at why uh, people like Brittany Martin and uh, the uh, 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 the comrades in Denver were attacked the way they are. They were li- they were clearly attacked because they were offering leadership in this movement. That's why they were targeted. That's why they were arrested. And like I say, uh, the, the the overlap between situations like Brittany Martin and Josh Williams is that uh, the state clearly wanted to make an example of people to where uh, the facts around the uh, uh, supposed offense actually doesn't matter. It's just sort of the state taking the opportunity to show what happened if you resist in a particular way. And so I see, I feel like that's part and parcel, Kamal, of what you're spelling out in terms of uh, the uh, political repression that uh, uh, movements are facing here in the United States and how the state doesn't hesitate to come down as hard as it can on people who have the audacity to try to resist uh, racist police terror. And so as such, it seems that uh, we really have to keep an eye on that kind of development as we continue to develop this struggle and the movement around these issues. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. I think this continues to be part of the uh, the, the reverse narrative and or the capture of the narrative, the recapture of the narrative by the state, uh, and the state being everything from the federal government, the state government, city governments, and county governments. Uh, their capture of the narrative that police are good and should be protected and should be respected, um, that they're going to defend the criminal justice system, um, and by defending, we mean that they are going to target organizers and activists, um, and they're going to target them, as you said, for not only long sentences, but even for simple arrests. Uh, and this is a strategy that was employed back in the 60s and 70s and even before that, where minor arrests, uh, where uh, organizers in the Black Panther Party, let's say, were arrested for minor things, everything from jaywalking to crossing the light, uh, the, 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 the street when the light was a different color, uh, to not necessarily having ID on them during a certain time period. Um, 
And so all of these things, what they do is that they make the movement have to spend time either getting people out of jail, spending money or resources, and again, time working on these kind of cases as opposed to working on the particular issue uh, at hand. So this is a direct tactic by the state, whether or not it's a, a let's say, a, a larger uh, overall goal in which they've all talked about, i.e. conspiracy, it doesn't matter. The state knows its tools, what it has at hand, um, and in, even in their individual jurisdictions, they're showing us that they're not necess- they're not afraid to use those tools and that they will use those tools to silent protest and to make put some fear into organizers and activists who are fighting against police terror. And this is the same terror that they're fighting against that the state continually shows itself to uphold and to rally for and rally behind, which is protecting the police, protecting the criminal justice system, and treating the citizens of the country uh, like they are fodder for or grist for the prison industrial uh, system to continue working as it has been. Yeah, and, you know, the the, the harassment uh, by uh, the, the state continues against uh, Ms. Martin, even as she is in prison pregnant because apparently I guess South Carolina has this bizarre rule where dreadlocks are uh, a a prohibited uh, hairstyle and it's a policy violation of the South Carolina Department of Corrections. So she says she's been assaulted uh, by an officer, harassed by officers. They've even kept her from uh, or tried to keep her from eating lunch in the cafeteria. Obviously, clearly, clearly not uh, uh, providing her and her child with the basic nourishment that they both need. I mean, it's so, you know, if uh, there is a, a, a successful, um, you know, legal claim to, to free uh, Miss Martin, and I hope that that does happen, what do you think needs to be done to address these kinds of systemic issues with the way people are treated in prison? Because this is always something we have to uh, focus on as uh, abolitionists and when we're when we're talking about political prisoners. So, I mean, how do you see us being able to look at the way Miss Martin is being uh, targeted in prison because, literally because of who she is and, and why she is there and how we can use that content to continually um, erode the power of the prison industrial complex. Yeah, I think that nothing will solve this issue except movement and organizing um, and radical change. Uh, I think there's obviously some things that we can nibble around. Again, I, I you know, I'm, I'm assuming that if there is some more media attention that has shined on this case, uh, more national attention, that there's a possibility, hopefully a strong possibility, that she will be released early. But it does not necessarily mean that her uh, her judgment will be vacated. Um, and so, again, I do understand the attorneys trying to do whatever they can do quickest to get her out. But there's, of course, other larger issues, um, as referred to earlier, that she never should have been arrested and or prosecuted in the first place. Um, but as long as the state retains the power, it's going to take uh, the power to do this. It's going to take critical mass movements to do something about it. You know, I think um, uh, recently, uh, over the last few days, there's been a strike by inmates in Alabama. Um, and to my knowledge, that strike was organized internally uh, by the inmates. They've been making their demands known through family and friends. 
um, and they were in unity, and they've basically had work stoppages within, um, and they've not gone to the canteen or to the lunch area to eat, uh, and the state has, again, taken its usual action in Alabama, which is that they further sort of locked down the prisons. They haven't talked about meeting demands or even having a good faith negotiation to talk about the filthy and disgusting um, um, uh, uh, living conditions that these prisoners uh, have to have to deal with and live under. Instead, they've done what they like to do, which is take the hard hand, consider the prisoners a threat, is even more of a threat because now they've organized for something bigger than themselves. Uh, they've organized against the state-sanctioned violence. They've organized against the conditions, and that makes them even a, a bigger threat as far as Alabama is going to be concerned. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be really up to movement organizing and connecting that organizing, connecting those dots both inside the prison and outside to help individuals like Ms. Martin, but also the larger area of uh, prison reform will only have to happen uh, when movements unite. And I think taking the lead from the prisoners in Alabama is a good way to start. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kamal Franklin. And come out, you know, over the break, I was thinking about the fact of really just the, the, the hypocrisy of this system, right? In the sense that when we talk about racist police terror, more oftentimes than not, police who brutalize and kill people get off scot-free. They walk away. Now, in the case of uh, George Floyd, uh, the officer that killed him, uh, Derek Chauvin, was able to, you know, ultimately was incarcerated, but that was only um, after the result of just this massive uh, uh, movement that was in the streets. And were Chauvin not convicted, I think that, um, you know, uh, different elements of the ruling class were very clear that uh, that could signal some things that perhaps they would rather not see happen. But even on another level, uh, looking at other things, like when you see the real uh, priorities of this system, because obviously, you know, they're not going to hold those uh, killer cops accountable, but are more than willing to, to jail people for uh, either, you know, standing up to the violence of the state or just, you know, for the crime of uh, being organized in general. But even if you look at sort of uh, uh, the reality of uh, Hurricane Fiona, which I think is set to make landfall in Florida here in the U.S. sometime soon. I mean, I'm looking at reports about uh, Puerto Rico, who is seeking a U.S. waiver to try to get more fuel shipments to the island in the wake of the devastation they faced during um, uh, 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 the hurricane. Uh, we see that Cuba has suffered a total electric outage as Hurricane Ian roars through. I don't believe um, there have been any uh, reported deaths uh, from this 
uh, in Cuba. But the reason I raise this is because we see uh, Puerto Rico uh, suffering the impacts of this uh, precisely because of their colonial status as it relates to the U.S. Cuba situation worsened as always by the uh, uh, criminal blockade uh, uh, sent from the United States. And so we see that U.S. imperialism and the capitalist system that undergirds it. Uh, its priorities are obviously not to actually protect humanity or to make available the resources necessary so that people can have access to the necessities of life. But instead, uh, those resources go to war. Um, excuse me. They go to war, destruction, bloodshed, uh, all these sorts of things. And of course, they also go to institutions like the police who literally only exist to uh, suppress and brutalize people and ultimately to protect the property of the capitalist class. And so I think just sort of having this understanding of who capitalism and imperialism works for and who benefits from it is really a, a question of class and the class character of this system. Because if we look at uh, uh, folks like I was mentioning earlier, like uh, Josh Williams and uh, uh, Brittany Martin and folks like this, I mean, here we have, uh, you know, working class people who uh, were attacked by the state uh, the same state that is in place to protect that same wealthy capitalist minority. You know what I mean? And so this is why I think it's important to view these things uh, through a class lens to get not only a fuller understanding of what's happening, but to also, I think, give us a clear idea of the best way to resist as we continue to organize. Yeah. And I think to connect the dots, it's, it, and it's how does capital work even during these disasters to take over repurpose, um, repossess, uh, 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 have deeper control over land, people, and resources. So when we look at Puerto Rico, uh, the prior hurricane, the, 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 the biggest thing that came out of that was that they privatized the water, right? Despite uh, protest against it, um, despite it having nothing to do to improve the water system, um, one of the things that took place was that they decided to privatize the water system. And then directly after the hurricane, you know, the, the, the power was lost. People did not have access to it. Um, the water and I, and I think the power system, if not, uh, the, the um, utility system, I should say, I think in Puerto Rico. Um, and so they privatized the utility system, I should say. Um, and the, uh, all of the uh, uh, power went out, uh, but it's in the hands of private capital. And so I'm sure that private capital will be one of the first people to get funding from the state um, to make sure that the grid is operating. Operating. And as Puerto Rico continues, and just using that as a continue as as as, a, as an example, as Puerto Rico continues uh, to deal with the changes in the climate due to capitalist exploitation, uh, folks are being forced to move to the mainland uh, to survive the 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 onslaught of atmospheric changes in Puerto Rico. Um, and in, in exchange, uh, rich uh, folks, uh, part of the capitalist class, other elites, are buying land and property, and their whole goal is to turn Puerto Rico outside of the hurricane season into basically a, a beach area, uh, a vacation spot that they control. And they'll control the land and resources. And you can better bet that once that starts to happen more fully, what will happen is the state, vis-a-vis uh, vis -vis the federal government, will put in 
hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to pay for fixing infrastructure as long as they they feel like it's going to the benefit of the capitalist class, that the expenditures will help capital and help them make a beach town out of an island uh, that has basically been colonized by the United States. I think we can further take that analogy over to Jackson, Mississippi, where the, the outage of the water, it hasn't resulted in mass amounts of resources being sent to uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, to fix the water. Uh, Instead, the federal government offered bottled water. People donated bottled water. Um, And then they made quick fixes and claimed now that the crisis is over. So they won't put the billions of dollars into Jackson, a poor black city, until they recapture Jackson through a process of gentrification and displacement. And then you better bet again that the resources that the state currently denies, the state being the the state government of of Jackson, of Mississippi, uh, that they currently deny the city of Jackson because it's mostly a poor black city, that they will be more than willing to pour, again, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in, in, in tandem with the federal government, no matter who's in power, to fix the infrastructure, as they do in areas surrounding Jackson, which are white enclaves uh, like Clinton and other places, which are basically white enclaves surrounding Jackson. Notice their water did not go out. They didn't uh, do it flooding. They had their water. Their water was clean. There's no conversation about lead pipes or anything else happening. Um, and so the plan for poor people is to starve them out, is to not, quote unquote, waste capital on them unless it's the capital to put them in prison uh, and to and to think long term about how they will recapture these spaces for the benefit of capitalists and capitalist enterprises. I just wanted to clarify, it was Hurricane Ian that uh, hit Cuba and has made landfall in Florida, but it was a Hurricane Fiona that hit Puerto Rico. But uh, Jackie Lukeman wanted to bring you in here. Yeah. And, you know, just talking about uh, Hurricane Ian that that is about to make landfall in Florida. I mean, as as we're seeing climate change uh, cause more and more of these uh, hurricanes, uh, tropical storms will be more frequent and will be more deadly. You know, we know this is going to happen and we've known it's, was, it was going to happen for some time because, you know, we paid attention to climate change and change and we understood that it's real. How do you see, you know, Kamau, this, this, the, these kinds of uh, uh, natural disasters is what they are, really uh, uh, heightening or deepening the dividing line between the haves and the have-nots in this country, um, in, in places that, you know, are not Jackson, Mississippi, which is, you know, a largely Black town, but in other poor communities across this country. I mean, how, what, at, at what point do you think that people in this country will literally realize that, you know, the government really does not care about them and is completely happy letting them uh, suffer the consequences of, you know, a hurricane that that they could have protection from, even help to evacuate because everyone can't afford to evacuate. But but state, local and certainly not the federal government will do anything about that. Do you think we're reaching a point of critical mass where all of these coalescing issues are pushing people to some type of awareness where they say enough is enough, uh, Kamal. 
It's hard to say in the United States because the propaganda system is so strong. Whether or not that propaganda is state propaganda uh, that says that climate change is not real um, or that basically blames uh, poor infrastructure without talking about the the need to fix that infrastructure or or poor governance, particularly when it comes to to poor areas in in the city and or in states. So it's hard to say what it's going to actually take for the masses of people in the, in the United States to finally see that capitalism, uh, its only goal is to extract wealth from them and from their, their labor um, and to therefore react to it. So, you know, we've seen homes torn down because of the intensity of, of, of hurricanes and bad storms because of climate change. You know, and, and throughout the 70s, we had, you know, a term that doesn't get applied as much anymore, environmental racism, which is part of the, the auction shoot of what's caused a lot of the, cl- the climate damage in the United States, um, where incinerators and garbage and other things were placed in black and brown communities, um, where the the, the um, water was uh, damaged either through lead or other poisoning or corporate runoff in, in working class or poor communities of any race or, 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 or whatever, that this stuff has been consistent and constant. And the and instead of doing anything about it to either criminalize a corporation that's done it or to enact new penalties through law, basically the state has cleaned up when it needs to and without much of a pay a payout for the corporations. Um, or again, they are ignored until the situation changes where they think there's something for them to gain. Um, and in those few cases where it's too heavy to ignore, the fixes aren't fixes that help the vast majority of people long time, long term. When we look back at Katrina, even uh, Katrina, which happened, uh, which devastated the city of New Orleans, uh, thousands of people killed, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, displaced. Um, and they saw that as an opportunity to rebuild New Orleans in an image which they hoped, uh, hoped would more reflect a middle-class white lifestyle. Um, and so slowly but surely, some folks have moved down. But remember, folks were not encouraged to move back to New Orleans. What instead they encouraged was other folks, other people moving in, fixing up other areas, not the black areas that were most uh, were most hurt by it. Um, and so I think that is what we can expect from capital. Uh, what we can expect from people is resistance, but whether or not we've reached the the, the turning point, let's say, where where resistance is is reaching a point where it's at a critical mass and the state has to, has to respond is something which is just hard to predict. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I really appreciate you uh, a moment ago, Kamal, <clears throat> raising the issue of Jackson, Mississippi and uh, the ongoing issues with clean water. I mean, I just think that's a great example of just, you know, the the, the glaring uh, a gap in resources, you know, for this, you know, a mostly black, mostly poor and, and working class city. Uh, I think we could say the same about Flint, which I believe you also mentioned. But, you know, as we uh, often point out, untold billions of dollars, you know, going to Ukraine, 800 some odd uh, military uh bases and installations uh, all across uh, the earth and uh, all these sorts of things. And I mean, you know, even um, 
<laughs> thinking about all these hurricanes, I mean, the issue of climate change is one born, I think, directly of uh, the, the contradictions of capitalism itself and sort of just the unchecked way that a lot of these corporations were um, able to just absolutely uh, pummel the uh, environment, basically with uh, no regulation or uh, uh, accountability. And so the idea that uh, the wealthiest nation in the world and perhaps the wealthiest one in history um, isn't even able to come to the defense of cities like Jackson and Flint and help to provide something as basic as clean water, as clean water, I just think reveals so much about um, the reality of the United States. And I think exposes the lie that the United States tells about itself and certainly uh, from what it tells to the rest of the world about, you know, its ability to care for, you know, your poor, your humble and so on and so forth. And, you know, even in thinking uh, uh, about this, Jackie, and how this plays out and just how glaring all of this is in terms of how the, the, the system really operates, I just feel like it really just uh, sort of peels back the the delusion that is American exceptionalism, which, of course, is just imperial hubris in a way. And even how that kind of attitude and thinking can trickle down uh, to the masses of people, because, of course, that is a, a ruling class notion. And the dominant ideas of any society are that of its ruling class. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, the more that things sort of unfold, I think both domestically and internationally as it pertains to the United States, I think the vulnerabilities of this system are being shown just as much as its cruelty and inhumanity. And as such, I think that provides an opportunity for organizers and movement people to identify where those vulnerabilities are and to strike at them as uh, effectively and strategically as possible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and particularly as these crises, whether it's, you know, the crisis of uh, racist police terrorism, state repression, you know, against activists and poor people, or if it's, you know, the lack of a coordinated and sufficient state response or federal response to natural disasters. In every one of these instances, you know, as much as I am uh, um, always trying to keep in mind that it's very hard for people who are trying to survive to look at their situation from, uh, you know, a 10,000 foot view or, you know, make other larger connections. But it is those moments when people, I think, are asking, why can't we get better from this government? Why can't the government, why, why is this happening to us? How can this happen to us in America? And that is always, I think, the question, Sean, where we can, uh, that, that's our entree into the conversations with people to explain, you know, the reason the government is not going to provide the kinds of services that you need in the face of a disaster is because they want uh, public utilities to be privatized. They want corporations to make money. They are unconcerned about the quality of life for working class and poor people. Um, and this is, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory. This is the way the government works. It is the plan. It's not like some made up thing. So I, I do think that even as we recognize that people are struggling to survive and people are struggling against the system, we do have to always be 
ready to help people make those connections um, in the face of all of this ongoing disaster, because the disasters won't stop. The repression won't stop. But I think we would be remiss in being organizers if we did not respond to the trauma and the disappointment and the disillusionment that people are experiencing when those disasters happen. And the system that, as you said, Sean, is supposed to be the greatest country in the world, ultimately, repeatedly fails them. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Kamau Franklin is here. And uh, Kamau, I wanted to dig in a little bit about um, forms of organization, if you will, and the kind of structures we'll need to develop to really bring about a genuine kind of democracy in the United States, a, a people's democracy instead of a uh, liberal bourgeois democracy that we live under right now. And I was thinking this because, you know, I saw that, um, you know, pretty soon you'll be taking part in a conversation about, you know, uh, people's assemblies and that role, you know, as a, a kind of a possible liberatory framework uh, for organizing and things like that. And the reason that that really stuck out to me is, you know, uh, uh, when we when we look at other countries, revolutionary countries like, you know, Cuba and Venezuela. And, you know, in the case of Cuba, they have the CDRs, the Committees to Defend the Revolution. And in Venezuela, they have uh, the communes. It, it just feels like whenever you look at just about any uh, revolutionary situation, uh, I think both historically and the contemporary sense, there's almost always some kind of unit of grassroots participatory democracy that begin really at that uh, hyper-local kind of level. And I think it's good that we're having these conversations about, you know, uh, what these structures look like within the uh, U.S. context and the best way to sort of develop them, because I think the very act of having the conversation, it presupposes the importance of people having power. And as I always want to point out here on the show, there's nothing wrong with having power. We should seek to have it. I think far too many of us are afraid of it, which I think sort of uh, cons conscripts and constrains our very uh, uh, politics and the way that we want to operate, if you will. And this is uh, uh, admittedly a pretty broad question come out. But when we talk about these different formations and these different structures, I mean, it really does seem like, you know, we should be focused on these kinds of collective uh, democratic formations that operate, I think, out of necessity and contradiction 
to how the uh, uh, capitalist state operates here in the United States. And so as such, I think that the people writ large, the masses of poor working and oppressed people have to define democracy for themselves and grapple with power for themselves as a way to bring about a society where their needs are at the center. You know what I mean? No, I direct. I completely agree. I was going to say, you know, direct democracy, the, the 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 flattening of power and leadership to make sure that folks who are at the the bottom levels or the working class folks have have some power over uh, over their lives is is you know supposedly at least the the very reason why we do this work so when we think about people's assemblies uh and how they are supposed to move away from a representative democracy in which one person is elected and they supposedly represent anything from thousands to hundreds of thousands if not millions of people but yet it's not those people who usually can force this person to make a decision in, in any which way that favors them because they're so onslaughted by uh corporations and private donors uh who give to them who direct them who write legislation for them and so the ability of people on the ground to have some sort of direct input into what uh policies should look like and what they should be like is usually very narrow in capitalist countries. They celebrate themselves for the illusion of democracy, but really they already know that they're providing narrow choices uh, for their citizenry, which don't necessarily involve them directly in how things should be managed and how things should be run. Uh, For instance, in Cuba just uh, passed a family act, uh, which codified protections for LGBTQ folks uh, and, and, and other things around the family being uh, extremely important in having protections, which was done through national referendum. So you won't get that kind of conversation here in the United States. In fact, most of the United States would probably have no knowledge that Cuba just did that, that they have more protections here, I mean, there in Cuba, than they do here for certain communities, uh, because people here are brought off by rhetoric and by propaganda, which tells them a place like Cuba is evil and not to be looked at and you're to look away from it, um, that it's a dictatorship. But there are instruments of power there. There's instruments of power within Venezuela, where we talk about the People's Assemblies, uh, the fact that communities can organize themselves, again, similar to what you talked about in, in Cuba, can organize themselves to directly say, this is what our community needs. And now we have to go about getting it from uh, the sort of the general pot of resources. Um, and so I think that is something that, you know, when we talk about cooperatives or we talk about worker-owned uh, um, um, housing, what we're really talking about is people having power and control over their lives as opposed to having to react to bosses, um, to landlords, to owners uh, who get to decide what's good and what's bad without any input whatsoever from common people. Yeah, you know, and I think for organizers, we always look at, you know, the kinds of things that Cuba does, uh, like, you know, passing the family code, literally changing the Constitution. I think when we look at it in those terms, as opposed to, uh, you know, the the concept of community based power, like people power from the bottom up, what an actual uh, representative democracy looks like. Uh, what a real democracy looks like, it's hard for us to convey that idea to people that we're trying to organize. I think largely, Kamal, because 
we have a different understanding of what a neighborhood is, what a community is, I think. And I'm wondering what you think about uh, about that very, uh, very real and tangible difference between what community means in places like Cuba, where, you know, they, the communities are able to change the Constitution because they have power, and what a community means to people here in this country, where I think we're still working on developing uh, community in, in the most uh, basic, generic, familial sense, and not even getting being able to get to the political power part of it. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I think communities here in the United States are commodified entities. They're commodified areas where, uh, whether you're renting or owning a home, uh, the idea is that you will do that for a few years and you'll you move out. So the connections um, are tenuous at times, particularly if folks have the ability to move out. Uh, the communities don't themselves uh, really get to say, what new development happens uh, in their neighborhoods. They don't get to say what new businesses open, what the needs are. That's done by the capitalist interests or by uh, uh, the middle-class uh, uh, aspiring capitalists who want to open up businesses. And so it's not necessarily about the needs of the community, but the need of the capital class and what it thinks it can extract from those neighborhoods. Uh, so, so many times what we have here in the United States is the process of gentrification where corporations uh, and developers will target particular areas and they will decide what's going to happen with housing prices, what's going to happen with rental prices, how that's going to impact um, our property taxes for people. Again, what stores and what's available for shopping and buying and purchasing when those stores are not present and what causes food deserts. Those are not things that the community has strong opportunities to say, you know what, we're going to gather around and we're going to develop um, some housing cooperatives or some land trusts, or we're going to develop a food cooperative, um, a cooperative grocery store. Mm -hmm. Those things are a few and far apart in the United States because, one, the power is not there. Again, I think the propaganda system tells us and uh, that we're all individuals and itemizes us. And so instead of collectively thinking about how we should be acting together, we're pitted against each other for resources. We're pitted against each other in terms of thinking who's on top of who, who has more resources and who, who can get more money for the sale of their house, who can drive the more expensive car. So we've been taught to think of ourselves around our possessions and not around what's in our community. And again, I think until we as community organizers and activists become strong enough uh, because we have more people joining our ranks, that we can begin to show like what alternatives look like as we battle the state. I think that's the only way I can see is that building these alternatives, sometimes small, but very important so that folks can see, oh, so that's what you mean. So that's what socialism looks like. Well, that's what cooperative behavior looks like. Well, that's what the new economy looks like. Um, I think those things are important for us to really work hard and dig deep on because I think folks here have such a, a drowned out concept of what community is um, that merely talking to people at this stage just won't uh, satisfy folks' idea or change people's idea around what it means to be in a neighborhood. This, this is an important point that you're making, Kamal. When you talk about under capitalism, communities as commodified spaces. 
And that is just so true. And I think you're right to point to the process of gentrification and displacement, what they used to call urban renewal, um, as uh, I think a glaring example of that relationship. And see, this is why I say that the capitalist system vulgarizes uh, uh, human relationships and these other important people's institutions like uh, something as fundamental as the community. And I think that because, you know, uh, people, you know, we live in these communities, you know, we live and work and, and all these sorts of things in communities. So it might not uh, be readily apparent. I mean, it's that, you know, whole thing about, you know, you know, does a fish know what's in water uh, type of deal. But the fact is, is that uh, since this system, this capitalist system penetrates each and every level and facet of society and human life in and of itself, that it trickles down uh, uh, to the very basic units of living, including the community. And so when we talk about this redefinition, Earlier, I was talking about how the struggling people of this country have to define democracy for themselves and grapple with power for themselves. I think a part of that also was going to have to be a redefining of community, a definition of community that is not hamstrung and bound up in the machinations of an exploitative capitalist system. Because under a capitalist system, what the three of us here, and maybe folks listening to this might conceive as a community, is uh, really quite difficult, particularly as it uh, continues to develop and get into some of its uh, later stages. You know what I mean? And uh, it, it just, I think, sort of shows the importance of having a, a real political imagination about what is possible. And that's why I always say on this show that, you know, we can never um, sort of underestimate the, the weight of what it is that we're trying to achieve in this country, because what we are literally trying to do is to completely change this society and to overturn this capitalist system. And so Jackie, I think that's going to require People uh, uh, looking at themselves, their organizations, the very places where we uh, uh, live and organize and to try to develop these things in order to, you know, move forward towards that new world, that new reality that we know is necessary. Not only is it necessary, but it's also absolutely possible. You know what I mean? We have to dare to invent the future, as I believe uh, Thomas Sankara uh, has said. And so, you know, th this is why I think we have to struggle through this tendency that capitalism has to really dampen or to weaken, really, our political imagination to where we can only see things through the scope of how they are at this moment. And so we have to have a kind of vision that pierces the 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 darkness of this uh, capitalist capture of our political imagination and, you know, frankly, dare to struggle for that which is new. But that, I think, is going to require a, a new understanding of a lot of things in a lot of ways. But this is part and parcel of the uh, 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 organizing experience, I think, in and of itself. And I think it'll be a sort of a crucial step in really building this kind of movement that we know we need to make this new society. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, if you dare to struggle, you dare to win. But if you don't even bother to struggle, then you don't deserve to win. You know, that is what uh, Chairman Fred Hampton said. I mean, 
we when when we are reimagining this future and you know calling a thing that is not yet to come what what it what you know calling it into existence i think when we are doing this in our organizing we help people to move from this uh, singular, uh, uh, individualistically based idea of community, but, you know, basically, what can I get out of this new future into uh, a future that is based on people-centered human rights for all people? So the conversation that we're having in regard to community building with people is no longer what can we, what can I get out of this? How is this going to affect me? But then the conversation turns into what can this society do for everyone? If we change this society that does so little for so many people and only benefits so few, if we reimagine a new society, then the question is, what, how do, how can we change that on its head? How can we Imagine and build a society that does much more for the many. What does that look like? And I think when we steer conversations away from, you know, well, if if we if we if we if we implement socialism, then the state's going to take my property, you know, all that kind of stuff. When we continue to struggle with these ideas that people have, that's very deeply entrenched in capitalism and individualism. We also help people, I think, Sean, see the humanity in other people and see how important it is to uplift the humanity of other people and not just seek a society that is centered around what they can get. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is important because a part of how uh, capitalism sort of constrains our political imagination is to make us think that we're powerless and that we can't. Uh, you know, that we can't take it upon ourselves to seize the time and to take our destiny into our own hands and to bring about the kind of society and system that actually serves us instead of one that uh, merely seeks to exploit us ruthlessly. So just the mere idea of helping people understand their own ability to actually make change, I think, uh, uh, can be a big part of the process and why organizing work is so important, because we have to fight through this uh, sense of helplessness and this cynicism to show people that we are the hope for the future and that it is our duty to fight for it. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Kamal Franklin, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.